chapter 12. We will spend our time there. Um, And I don't know if you remember back in the mid-2000s, or as some people in England might say, the mid-noughts, MasterCard had a series of commercials. And they, uh, they often would say, you'd hear this narrator and you'd see people on the screen and, and they'd be going somewhere and the narrator would say, such and such an item costs this much. Such and such an item costs that much. Such and such else costs this much. But some other thing is timeless. And their whole point behind their message was that certain things are priceless. Certain things are are, have no value to them. But for all the other things, MasterCard would want us to remember that there is MasterCard. So we can go into debt or if your debit card company does that. So for instance, we might say a pair of hiking boots, maybe $100, uh, a fancy water bottle to carry with you while you're going, $35, a comfortable chair to sit on, $20, time with your loved ones and friends, priceless, right? Um, so, but, but we have to recognize that things in our lives have value. Things in our lives cost. Now, I'm, you know, even, even in coming together as a church, it has a cost for us. And I'm not necessarily talking about the cost of what we may or may not have put in the offering box at the back or what you might have automatically pulled out of your checking account like I do for, your, for our offerings. There is that cost, but there is the cost of even just gathering. There's that cost of time. I mean, some of us could be doing other things on Sunday mornings. There's the cost of comfort. Pews are a whole lot less comfortable than your couch, right? There's the cost of quiet. You know, sometimes church can be noisy. But I hope that our time of worshiping God together is priceless, that it it has value beyond what we can count. But there are some people who can only value things in what's in it for me. They can only value things on what they get out of it. What did I receive? And if I received something, then maybe or maybe not it was worth it. How can I learn? How can I be fed? How can I be served? And today, as we study the book of John, we come to an interesting encounter, as, as, as Jordan already read, where an act of extravagant or priceless worship prompted extravagant greed by one and extravagant jealousy by others. So as I mentioned, if you have your Bibles, open them to John 12. We're going to be there most of the time. You'll want to be looking there because we won't have uh, scriptures on the screen. We'll have some references there. But thinking back contextually, three weeks ago when we were back in John, um, we were in John chapter 11, and this is the encounter when Jesus showed up four days late to Lazarus' sickness. And it was four days late because Lazarus was, was four days dead. And Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, were heartbroken, and they're crying out to Jesus, if only you had been here. And then Jesus does what only he can do, and he calls Lazarus out from the grave, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And so the girls go from being heartbroken to overjoyed in a matter of minutes. 
And so here in chapter 12, we're back in the same town because Jesus left town. He went away for a while and he came back. We don't know exactly how long this is, most likely six months or less from, from that previous encounter. And so they're back in Bethany, that same town, which is about two miles from Jerusalem. We're back with that same family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We also find Jesus and his disciples with them because it seems like Mary and Martha wanted to throw a party for Jesus. They wanted to have this big feast in gratitude. They heard Jesus was coming back into town, and they said, hey, y'all, let's get together. We're roasting a Well, they wouldn't say roasting a pig. We're going to have a cookout, and we're going to have a really good meal, so let's celebrate together. And we get, the, we get the impression from the text that there are other people who are here as well. So as we look at this passage, we're going to look at it. Normally, we would go sequentially, verse by verse, but we're actually going to take it in reverse. We're going to look at it backwards, okay? Not because Scripture intends for us to do that, but because I want us to meditate really on what happens first. So we're going to put the first at the last so we can think about it that way. So with this feast and all of the people uh, that, that were gathering around Jesus, in fact, it, it just next, the very next day would become what we know as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. So there are thousands of people who are really aware of what's going on around Jesus, thousands of people who are aware that he's in town and he's, there's going to be some neat things happening. But with Jesus being there and with the fact that this dead man, Lazarus, was now walking, several of the religious leaders expose their extravagant jealousy. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. They have this extravagant jealousy. Look at what it says in your copy of God's Word. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see um, Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I think it's important for us to remember that our sinful natures have a way of allowing jealousy to hinder the good work of God in other people's lives. You know, here the religious leaders were threatened by this crowd. They were threatened by this growing throng of people that were following Jesus. Not to mention all these people who were curious about Lazarus. I mean, think about this. Wouldn't you want to have a conversation with Lazarus? Lazarus, is death scary? Lazarus, what is it like to be dead and now be alive? I, I, can I touch you? Are you real? Are you the same? I mean, there's all this curiosity around that. And so these religious leaders become jealous. And instead of celebrating and joining in, they're scheming to kill Jesus and Lazarus because Lazarus is kind of helping Jesus' message. And we've seen over the last several chapters how time and time again, the signs, the encounters that Jesus would have, the conversations he would have resulted in obstinance from many of the religious leaders of their day. They heard and saw what he did, and they thought, no, this can't be it. This isn't how God works. God fits in our little box, and this can't be in that box. 
you know, all the signs pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, but these religious leaders simply won't believe. His teachings reveal truths about God, but they refuse to listen. They're threatened by Jesus and his growing following and threatened because they fear that they will lose their power. If you remember three weeks ago when we were back in John chapter 11, we, we read that some of the religious leaders said this in John eleven forty seven 47 to 48. He said, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man, referring to Jesus, performs many signs. And if we let him go on like, like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But I wonder, how often do we find ourselves in similar situations? We look at other churches and think, wow, God is really blessing there. Those are so big and so wonderful, as if numbers is all that there is. We might ask, what are we doing wrong? What are they doing right but we could also look at God's work in other individuals and see God using them and out of jealousy undermine the very work that God is doing in their lives, talking poorly about them. Oh, yeah, he, yeah, he's super spiritual. We get in this comparison game. And rather than seeking God and pursuing his will for our lives, we joyfully long for the work that God is doing somewhere else. God, if only you would bless me like you're blessing them, I would be happy. All the while forgetting the way that God is moving now in our lives. Jealousy. I think this is the last time we use this microphone. Jealousy can be easily masked as a form of covetousness, longing for that which someone else has. And ultimately, I think these religious leaders will get their wish with Jesus because within a week, he will be dead. But in a week and a couple days, he'll be alive again, and then they will have unleashed some things that they had no idea they were going to unleash. Yet their act of jealousy will be the very thing that God uses to accomplish his redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. But their jealous devices are not without assistance. You see, in this encounter, we also learn about a guy named Judas. And we learn not about his extravagant jealousy, but about his extravagant greed. And we see this in verses 4 through 8. And, and just to provide a little context, because we're working backwards, if you remember in what Jordan read, this woman, Mary, took this very expensive jar of ointment and began to pour it out over Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then it, we pick up in chapter 12, verse 4. It said, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. There's really so much we could unpack in that, but I want us just to think about this. It's important to remember about, about Judas's act and, and how that relates to us. 
I think it's also important for us to recognize that John, as he's writing this, is writing it from a historical perspective. All of these events are things that he experienced back around 32, 33 AD. And John is now writing this much later in life. So he isn't clairvoyant in saying Judas would be about to betray Jesus. He's, no, he's speaking back into it from, from the future, saying, yeah, history, we, oh, now I see the signs. Judas was helping himself to these things. Judas would betray him because, yeah, we experienced his betrayal. And, and I think Judas is quite perceptive in recognizing the value of what Mary had poured out. Scripture tells us that it was worth about 300 denarii, which is about a year's wage for a laborer. And we think, well, what? 300 denarii? But let's put it into modern dollars and make it hurt. Just briefly, if an average laborer today in Montgomery County should be making about $15 an hour, right? Full-time, 300 days at $15 an hour would work out to about $36,000. That is one expensive perfume. That could do a lot of work for the poor. I mean, imagine how many people WAMCO would help if we would just sell that and give them the money and then they could do good things with it. Imagine what other good things we could do, how many missionaries we could support, how many people we could help pay their electric bill or their water bill or pay to put gas in their cars. And yet at the same time, it leaves this amount of money, $36,000, 300 denarii, leaves a lot of room for for Judas to experience or to demonstrate a five-finger discount in that money bag. No one's going to be bothered by two or three or four or 10 or 30. But Judas wasn't the only one who struggled with this sin of greed or even sin of covetousness. If you think back in 2 Samuel chapter 2, the sons of Eli disqualified themselves from ministry because they were taking the very thing that was supposed to be reserved for God and they're saying, hey, that's mine. I want that. In the book of of Hosea, we get to see priests that were reprimanded because they wanted the greedy gain that they would receive from the offerings and the sacrifices of sinners. So they were hoping that people would sin because if they sinned, then there would be bigger offering in the offering plate. There would be better meals for them because they'd have to burn a bigger cow or bull or whatever else, and it was going to be a feast. So the priests were in this position of saying, go ahead, keep on sinning. We don't really care about your holiness. We just care about our dinner plate. And they get scolded for that. that. And yet Jesus also, in the book of Luke, even challenged his followers to be careful about greed and about covetousness. Luke 12, 15 says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. There are so many areas in which we could think about and and apply biblical principles to this. And here Judas seems, Judas' greed seems to be focused on financial resources or gain. And our society plays right into that. We almost can't get past a, a single commercial. If you listen to podcasts like, like I do, there's that next best thing that always interrupts the, the good conversation you're listening to. 
our society and the manufacturers and marketers, they, they pl play on our greedy natures in order to get us to purchase the next best thing, the next greatest gadget. Apple and Samsung are always coming out with the next upgraded phone that we just have to have because if we don't, our lives won't be the same. TV manufacturers will upgrade their technology, creating opportunities for newer viewing experiences. Remember the old rage of 3D TVs? I didn't ever get into it because I didn't want to have to wear these special glasses in my living room to watch something jump out at me. I just, it wasn't a big deal. There are toys that respond, correspond with the latest movies. I mean, that's why McDonald's is there, right? They're marketing with the movie makers so that they can give us toys that end up in our trash cans. Oh, I didn't say that. And then there's the clothes that change with every season. Why can't they just keep styles the same for years and years and years? There are so many ways that we can think materially about all the stuff around us. What is necessary? What might be a blessing? And where are we being greedy? Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's hard to spot covetousness. Sometimes it's hard to see greed for what it is. But it isn't limited to material possessions. I think we can even find them in the good things at church. There are times when we might say, well, the worship style is, could be this or could be that. I like it when I hear that band or that church or whatever. Or maybe we get greedy for certain positions of authority or leadership. Or maybe we get covetous about the, the gifts or spiritual talents that other people demonstrate, that other people get to put on. Why does God use them? Why not me? Jealousy and greed and covetousness, they all kind of overlap in that way. And our consumeristic American culture uh, makes biblical and covenantal commitment to church challenging. We like a church as long as it suits our need. I'll be here as long as you make me feel good. But as soon as I don't, I'm going to leave or I'm going to just go virtual. And then you won't ever know if I'm tuning in or not. And I think this is partly why meaningful membership is so vital to a church our covenant together means that we care about one another and us together more than we care about ourselves individually. It means that we'll reach out to others and see how they're doing. And I think the directories that are out in the foyer are a beautiful example of that. What a great opportunity for us to pray through that directory and, and think, how, oh, I haven't seen that person. Let me, let me ask how they're doing. How can I be praying for them, reaching out to them? It also means that if there are problems or challenges or blind spots in ministry, that we'll work together to come up with solutions that resemble our culture and our community instead of pulling in cookie-cutter solutions. Oh, well, it worked for that church, so let's apply it here. Well, they don't live in Poolsville. They don't do things this way. And ultimately, I think meaningful membership means that we 
is more important than me. But as we read in this passage earlier, we ultimately find that the greed of Judas and the jealousy of the religious leaders was sparked finally by Mary's extravagant worship. Mary's extravagant worship. Let me read for us the first three verses of John 12. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." As I said before, several weeks before this event, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And so now his siblings are, um, had gone from being heartbroken to overjoyed. Jesus left. He moved away for a while because of the threats that were on his life. He knew that his time was not yet. So now that he comes back into town, the family decides to throw this party. And it appears that it was, this was no small feast. You have Jesus and his 12 disciples, plus Mary, Martha, Lazarus, plus a handful of town people. You're looking at well over 20 people, at least. It could be 40, 50, 60. Several commentators also suggested that this was on a Saturday, a Saturday, our Saturday evening, right at the tail end of Sabbath. So it would have been followed by a special, um, special ceremony or service in the synagogue called a Habdalah. This was a time to culminate, hey, now we've rested, we've feasted, let's worship God together. And as I said, the next day became Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. But this big meal, this big feast gets interrupted by this smell, this fragrance. Have you ever noticed that every now and then you can, someone will walk into a room, maybe they have a little bit too much cologne or perfume on and you're like, and if you're allergic to, you're thinking, oh my goodness, let me not breathe that in, right? Sometimes, wow, that's so nice. And yet here's Mary. She opens up this jar of perfume and pours it over Jesus. And Bruce Milne, one of the commentators that I like to read, notes six qualities to Mary's act of worship. And I think as we think through these six qualities, I want us to think about, well, how is our worship like that or unlike that? Where maybe should we follow Mary's example in this? But first of all, we see that her, her act of extravagant worship was humble. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute, you see, in our Western eyes, we read this thinking there's a table, a normal-sized table, probably an extra big, long table, and people are sitting at chairs. Well, the text says that the disciples were reclining at their table. Well, most likely, this was a table that was only a few inches tall. And so where are your feet going to go? They're not going to go there. They're going to go behind you. So I know this is probably a little bit crude for a Sunday morning, but so here's Jesus, likely on a pillow on one side, on his left side. His feet are behind him. The table's in front of him, high over there. And he's eating like this. So in order for Mary to get to Jesus' feet, where does she have to be? Behind him. So she gets on her knees, the very position of a servant, pours this oil out, this 
pure nard on him and begins to wash his feet. And then it says she, wa- she dries it with her hair, which means that now where is her head? Right in Jesus' feet. And one of the interesting things, if we were to look at all the other places where Mary shows up in the Gospels, you know where she is? At Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, she's at his feet listening. We, we saw in, in, in the last chapter in John eleven thirty two, 32, she fell at his feet. And so now is the, in this act of humble, extravagant worship and service, she is there again at his feet, demonstrating her devotion to God, to Jesus. And, and in our worship, you know, so often we stand, and rightly so, we stand in awe or adoration of God. But I wonder how often do we take that attitude of humility or a posture of servitude? Milne concludes his, little, his reflections on this by stating that true service for Jesus springs from a wholehearted commitment to him as Lord. The feet of Jesus is where service begins. But not only is Mary's act humble, her act is also perceptive. So many people are celebrating and acting in a way to honor Jesus, but Mary seems to sense the weight of what's going on. She seems to perceive the tensions that are all around her. She seems to think, "This, I need to do this now. She doesn't know what's coming. She doesn't know that she would be observing Jesus on the cross less than a week later. But she knows that I gotta do this now. Thirdly, her act is timely. You know, people start to balk at the extravagance of her, of her gift, but Jesus notes that this anointing was saved for this moment in time, that he would be, it was for his burial. And he, I think he knew what was coming down the pike, but nobody else did. And so she, she acted when she was moved to act. She didn't wait for another time. And how often are we like that? We hear the Holy Spirit saying, oh, will you do this? Will you call that person? Will you reach out and write them a note? And we think, oh, later. Why would that thought be in my head? Imagine if she would have waited till next week. It would have been too late. How often do we wait for a time that's more convenient or comfortable? And I would guess that doing what she did took a bit of courage, especially in light of the criticism she received, which is the next point. Her act of extravagant worship was criticized. Judas takes the lead here in this criticism, stating that these resources could be used for a better purpose, better in his mind, right? Our worship of God will be criticized by others. Outsiders don't necessarily understand why we would devote so much attention to ancient words from an ancient book. And they might criticize our devotion and adherence to old-fashioned values, which we would call biblical. And some might even wonder why we would give up a couple of hours on a Sunday morning to read and sing and study and fellowship together. All while thinking, all the while they're thinking there are much better things to do, better 
on a Sunday morning, like ride motorcycles or go hunting or fishing or play sports. No offense to anyone who like motorcycles, hunting, fishing, or sports. But I believe our worship is meaningful, but it's also misunderstood. And so just like Mary, we should resolve to be vigilant in the face of criticism. So not only was her act of worship humble and perceptive, timely, and criticized, fifthly, we see that her act of worship was extravagant. We already mentioned the value of this perfume. This was a very expensive gift to bestow on Jesus. For, For Mary, I think in this moment, no cost was too great. After all, her brother was dead and now he's alive. Here's Jesus and all the things he'd been teaching. Why can't, why shouldn't I pour this out on him? Now for our worship to be extravagant, does that mean we need to empty our wallets or our pocketbooks? Do we need to just put all that in the offering box? Do we need to empty our bank accounts? That's what it is. That's what extravagant worship would be, right? I don't think so. I don't think, because there are so many things that God has called us to with the resources he's given us to be faithful day in, day out, week in, week out with those resources. But I do think we need to reflect on what we deem as valuable and precious. What is that one thing that God would have us not give up. Think about Abraham. He had been praying and longing and hoping for a son, and then he has this other son, and and then the very son that he gets, God says, okay, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham believes somehow that God would be able to raise Isaac from the dead. He said, God, you are worthy of being worshiped that even Even my son, my only son, whom you gave me, I will give. And I think that's the view that Mary has here, and I think that's the view that we need to have. This may have been a family heirloom or something that she was reserving for a special occasion, but decided that this was the better time. But there's one other thing that Milne notes about Mary's gift, and that it was fruitful. John tells us that the fragrance of this perfume filled the house, I've never smelled pure nard, but I can imagine it was very fragrant, pungent probably in a good way, but piercing through the, the, the aroma of the feast. One of the commentators also noted this, that for the next week, for the next several days, because often we take showers or baths every day, right? But back in Jesus' day, it was only periodically that they would do that. So now imagine this, as Jesus is walking around, as he goes to to the triumphal entry the next day, as he goes back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem for the next five days, he is smelling the aroma of this nard that has been anointed on his feet. And I would guess potentially even as he goes to the cross Friday morning, that aroma is still there. And what's more, her gift has been and continues to be reflected on for centuries. It is still bearing fruit today. And what kind of fruit does our worship bear? Are we individually impacted by what, is, what God is doing in our midst? Are our gifts 
whether financial or time or talents bearing fruit for the kingdom, or are we simply fulfilling what we perceive to be an obligation or a duty? So let me just close with a couple thoughts. Mary's extravagant act of worship sparked greed in, among some and jealousy among others. And yet all of those provide points of reflection for us. I wonder, where are we jealous? Where are we greedy? Where do we hold back in our worship? And I think it's important for us to recognize that no matter how extravagant our worship may be, God demonstrated ultimate extravagance in his gift of Jesus on our behalf. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Beloved brother and sister in Christ, I want you to remember that you are an heir with Christ. Not because of your extravagant worship, but because of God's extravagant loving kindness toward you and toward me. And I pray that we would rest and rejoice in that. But also, friend, if I want to encourage you that God's love for you far outweighs any act of religious piety that you could muster. He made a way for you to be in a relationship with him by addressing your sin problem and mine paying for them on the cross with the perfect blood of Jesus. And if you've not yet trusted Christ as your Savior, then I pray you would. Talk to someone after the service, someone down the pew from you or behind you or in front of you. Say, help me understand this. Or let's get together and have a cup of coffee this week and we'll talk. He paid the most extravagant price that you, so that you and I might walk in assurance of eternal life. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you. Thank you for this witness and the example of Mary. Thank you for all that she willingly poured out in worship to you. And God, I pray that our lives would be marked by that same kind of extravagant devotion. And Father, when we're tempted to greed and we're tempted to jealousy, I pray that you would help us to walk in humility, rejoicing in all that you have blessed us with. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.